Well, as you're taking your seats there, you can go ahead and take your Bibles and open them up to the book of Hebrews chapter 10. Well, this week, we saw some interesting things happening um, in the world around us. We saw, if you were watching the news at all, the tragic destruction of Notre Dame, that great cathedral um, that is a symbol of so much in France. That great building, that great structure was begun in 1663. Incredible to think about how old that building is, but it really began to take shape in the 12th and 13th centuries during the height of Gothic architecture. Gothic architecture, you may be familiar with it. Let me give you a quick reminder. Those those great buildings, those massively huge buildings with high vaulted ceilings, ornate Um, pictures all around, fine details. Gothic architecture itself was intended to communicate certain truths, namely transcendence. You were intended to walk into a Gothic cathedral and experience this feeling of transcendence, the, the sheer magnitude and scope of the facility reminding the person who entered in of the sheer magnitude and scope of the God and creator of the universe. It was intended as a result of reminding of who God was and his transcendence above all things to remind the, the, the individual how ver- of how very, very small they were in comparison to God. What's interesting is that this architectural concept and idea was nothing new to the Gothic period. In fact, it was simply picking up on concepts that have been commonplace in human history for millennia. In fact, this was a concept that God himself had ordained and promoted even in the commanding of the building of his very own temple. The very same principles at place and throughout Israel's history, the temple, the house of God, was the place where God's presence dwelt. It was his house. It was God's residence on earth. It was the place where heaven and earth met, so to speak. Everything about the temple was intended to reflect its occupant. You would walk into the temple and you would instantly be struck by the size of it, just like Gothic architecture. The huge high ceilings, the structure in its day was in one sense unparalleled. It was massive in magnitude, reminding you of the magnitude of God. It was filled with beauty and majesty, reminding you of the beauty and majesty of God. There was gold everywhere, reminding you of the purity and holiness of the God of this universe. It was the place where humanity could recognize their ultimate purpose, to draw near and to know the God who had created them, the God who had given access to himself and to his presence. But it was also a powerful reminder that to have access to God's presence was not easy. In fact, it was quite difficult. It was quite hard. It was intentionally designed that way by God himself through the architecture of the temple and through the system that had been put in place. To approach God was a very serious and very difficult thing. Access to God's presence, in fact, was significantly restricted. 
The author of Hebrews writes in chapter 10 to us and speaks in many ways of the access that was restricted, reminding us of what every faithful Jew in the past would have known and would have believed and would have experienced, that it was very difficult to get into the presence of God, but something had changed. In Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 19, let's read it together. The author says this, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us, through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great, high, a great priest excuse me, over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. This morning and on Easter, we want to look at this passage and be reminded of the access that was once restricted, and as we'll see on Sunday, is now granted But this morning as we look at this text, I want to look at the different nuances that remind us about how difficult it was to approach God, to gain that access into his presence, and to recognize this really is the heart of the human problem. And Good Friday specifically deals with this problem of access to God. The first thing we need to note from this text is this, that access to God was always protected Access was always protected. In fact, the structure of the temple was a means by which God was was teaching his people the difference between he and them, his transcendence as we talked about. The entire structure of the temple was designed to force you to reflect upon the difference between you and God and the difficulty it was to approach him, the limited access that you had to him. You began outside the temple and you had to enter into a barrier around the temple. And then when you got into the court of the Gentiles surrounding the temple structure itself, you still had to make your way into a a separate holy place. And around that holy place, right at the very center of the temple, was another level of God's holiness, the holy of holies. The whole structure designed to remind people of the difference between them and God. Why? Why? Because, as the text tells us in verse 19, the places were in fact holy. Just like the God of the house. He was holy. He was separate. He was different. He had no sin. He was completely perfect in every regard. He was unlike the people who were trying to approach him. The Holy of Holies was the culmination of this idea. It was this inner sanctuary, a perfect cube in design, reflecting the perfection of the God who dwelt there in the fullness of his presence. The entire cube was overlaid with gold, again, reflecting that holiness and the purity of the God who dwelt there. This room in the center of the temple was blocked off, as the text tells us, by a curtain The average person was unable to get into the presence of God. That's the point. His holiness was protected. Access to him was protected. And by the way, this wasn't just about a revelation about who God was. God wasn't just teaching his people who he was. He was actually at the same time protecting them from who he was. 
I remember being a kid, and as most kids do, you figure out that the sun is pretty powerful, and then in your foolishness as a child, you often will, will maybe when nobody's looking, or maybe dare your friends to stare at the sun as long as you can without blinking. You ever tried that? Right? I do not suggest it. It's kind of like staring at these lights behind me for a long period of time. Don't do it. It could end up doing significant damage to your eyes, right? I remember my parents telling me, like, don't do that, you're going to go blind. But you did it anyways. Look, in a similar way, God is protecting his people from staring directly at something that would not just damage them, but utterly and completely destroy them. It's interesting that this concept is all throughout the word of God. In fact, one of the the, the greatest pictures of this is when Moses, in Exodus chapter 33, he asks God to see his glory. He wants to see the expression of God's holiness. He wants to see all of who God is. He wants to get just a glimpse of the magnitude and majesty of this glorious being who has created him. And do you remember what God says to Moses? He says, Moses, in essence, you can't handle this. You can't see this. And so what he does is he puts them in a cleft of a rock and he covers the front somehow with his hand, so to speak, and he prevents Moses from staring head on into his glory. And the question is why? Why? Because God didn't want to be seen? No, because if Moses looked at God's glory, the word of God is very clear in Exodus 33, he would die instantly. Instantly. And so God protected Moses. He let him see the backside, a glimpse of his glory, without being exposed to the unmediated full weight of his glory. It was actually an act of God's grace and kindness. You see, God's holiness is the sum of his perfections. It is the purity of his essence. It's what the angels around the throne of God praise. It's what the saints around the throne sing about. Holy, holy, holy. And it is, believe it or not, what prevents us from having access to God. It's interesting that this text in verse 19 begins with this idea of having confidence. And that is a reminder that there was a time when people did not have any confidence in approaching God. His holiness was protected, but his people were protected as well from his holiness. This text mentions the great priest referring to the high priest and As we'll talk about in just a second, the high priest was the only one who had access to the presence of God in its fullness in the Holy of Holies. But what's really fascinating, listen, in Leviticus chapter 16, it tells us that as the priest went into the Holy of Holies, that one time a year when he was allowed, you want to know what he had to do? He had to light incense. Because as he walked into this room, he had to fill the room with the smoke of the incense. And in Leviticus 16, it tells us the reason why. Because the smoke of the incense had to cover the Ark of the Covenant, which was in the Holy of Holies, and specifically the mercy seat of God, which is where the presence of God showed up one time a year before that priest. And the text tells us that if a priest was to be exposed to God in this manner, he would too, listen, instantly die. So to protect him from the glory, the full weight of God's glory and holiness, God called him to fill the room with smoke. You see, it was a fearful thing to attempt to access God. Not only was his access protected, listen to this, his access was prevented. 
His access was prevented. You couldn't just rush into the presence of God. You couldn't just go there anytime you wanted to. And I just want you to think about that for a moment because so many of us as followers of Jesus Christ are so used to rushing into the very presence of God. We're invited to do so. But in the Old Testament, there was no invitation. It was not possible. It was not feasible. It was not realistic in any way. You could have no confidence and no ability to enter into the presence of God. There's language here that is really important. This whole book of Hebrews is rich with referring to the Old Testament law and and the, 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 the symbols there remind us of the sacrificial system. All of this language is so rich from an Old Testament perspective. He talks about the blood of Jesus, for example. In this book already, before this chapter, he's already spent a substantial amount of time talking about the sacrificial system. Uh, Blood was a huge part of that system. And he mentions here the need a little bit further on in the passage there in verse 22, the need for us to be sprinkled clean. Again, the imagery is to the Old Testament sacrificial system. He talks about here uh, in verse 20 about the veil, again, that curtain that was in front of the holy of holies that prevented people from just waltzing right into that place in the temple, the presence of God. This entire system, that sacrificial system that we read about in the Old Testament, was designed in one sense, again, to teach people about what ultimately prevents them from having access to God. You see, the reminder here of the blood reminds us of the blood sacrifice that was necessary to make atonement. That's what the the great priest was doing on this one day a year. He was walking into the Holy of Holies to make atonement, to make payment on behalf of the nation, on behalf of the people of God, a perpetual reminder of why they didn't have access. Yes, God was holy, but that was the holiness of God prevented them access because of who they were. In contrast, we have a children's book at home. We sell it actually at our book table. It's got all kinds of good imagery in it. And one of the things it talks about is this curtain, the curtain that prevented access. And it has this pithy line in it that is so helpful. So forgive the children's book line in here, but I think, I think you'll find it helpful too. The simple line is this, because of your sin, you can't come in. That's it. Because of your sin, you can't come in. You're prevented. You can't come in. You would die instantly in the presence of God. And so God prevents you from moving forward and accessing him. And I want you to see the nature of sin that's kind of described here for us in verse 22. It says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Listen to this. With hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Did you notice that he describes in a holistic sense every single part of us? Our hearts, the very center of our being in the Old Testament language It captures our mind, our will, our emotions. And then he talks about our conscience, which every one of us has been given by God that either excuses us or accuses us of sin or of righteousness. Every one of us in here knows what it's like to do wrong, to do moral wrong, and to feel the weight of our conscience convicting us. And then he talks about the need for our bodies to be washed. Again, a reminder that our sin that begins in the heart, in the mind, 
is so often expressed in and through our bodies. The picture here is this, that that there's not one part of us that is not infected by the disease of sin. Every one of us has the same problem. All of us is infected by sin, and all of us needs to be dealt with then accordingly. Sin is wholesale in every human being. And the Word of God tells us that without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sin. Our sin can't be dealt with without something dying and paying the price. The wages of sin is death, the Word of God says. You see, God's holiness demands God's justice. Because God is holy, because he is by nature someone without sin and someone who hates sin and despises sin, because all sin is ultimately rejection and rebellion against him, listen, his holiness demands that he judge sin accordingly, properly. This concept is all throughout the word of God, the idea of justice and judgment because of sin. I mean, it begins right at the very beginning of the Bible. When God created Adam and Eve, he places them in the garden, and he says, you can eat from every tree of the garden. You just can't touch, or excuse me, eat from this one. And what do they do? They go after what God has said they cannot go after. They do what God has said they cannot do. They violate the law that God had laid down for their good and for his glory. God had said to them, if you eat of this tree, you will surely die. See, sin, again, is rebellion and rejection of God. As a result, access to God, listen, here's the reality, should be completely denied, cut off entirely. But instead, what we see from the very beginning of the Bible is that God doesn't do that. He doesn't fully judge humanity on the spot. He doesn't take their life and their eternity in a moment. He delays. Instead, that judgment and justice is temporarily prevented. What does God do? Right at the very beginning of the Bible, God gives us the first animal sacrifice. God himself is the one who shed blood first. How does he do that? Adam and Eve are there naked and ashamed. For the first time, because of their sin, they realize who they are in all of their impurity, stained and covered in their own sin, now unacceptable to God, removed from relationship with God. And God finds finds them trying to cover themselves up, making their own clothes, trying to deal with sin their own way. And instead, what does he do? do? God provides the skin of an animal. Make no mistake about it. This is the first sacrifice in the word of God. God kills an innocent, innocent animal, and the symbolism and imagery and theology here is profound. He is saying, listen, I will not judge you on the spot. I will kill something else in your place and cover you up instead. Your sin can be covered up by what I do for you, not what you can do for you. So God institutes really the first sacrifice. By the way, where do you think Abel got the idea? He wasn't that smart. A way, you see, was created to provide temporary access to God. This was a temporary sort of washing and cleansing. The sacrificial system, yes, reminded them of who God was and who they were, but it reminded them of their need to constantly be cleansed and washed. Something had to die for their sin. Something had to make payment for their sin. 
It's kind of like you know, taking a regular shower or washing your hands before every meal, right? It cleans you, but at the same time, it reminds you of how quickly you get dirty. This endless cycle of spiritual bathing was provided as a means of grace and mercy, a system that reminded them of their sin and the cost of their sin, but of the mercy and grace of God. And lastly, we see that access was privileged. Now, there was a way into the presence of God, that much is clear. But as we've already discussed, as always, we've, already, we've already seen from the text, it was an extremely limited access. There were holy places, but there was a holy place where the presence of God would come once a year before his people. It was that perfect square in the middle, remember? There was one way in through the curtain, through the veil, a heavy purple cloth that provided a barrier between the holy of holies and the holy place. This purple cloth reminding us of royalty, cherubim stitched into it in gold. The center again of the temple was the Ark of the Covenant the symbolic representation of the very presence of God with his people, the mercy seat on the top. I don't have a picture, but if you've ever seen Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, that's a pretty good representation, actually. I'm not convinced about, uh, about everything else that came out of that movie related to the Ark, but... In that box were the two stone tablets given by Moses. Those were the two prominent things in there. The law of God, the word of God, the revelation of God. And once a year on the Day of Atonement, when all the people of Israel were called to celebrate and be reminded that God had spared them and not punished them, once a year the high priest himself would go through an extensive cleansing ritual and would take the blood of a bull and goat into the holy of holies. He would light that incense and he would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. And he would do so on behalf of himself, on behalf of all the people of God. One man and one man alone was allowed to enter into the presence of God and sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat, a picture of God's grace and mercy, temporary payment for sin so that man could have an ongoing privileged relationship and access to the God who created them. One man on behalf of the whole nation. He had VIP status, but not the kind you pay for, the kind that terrifies you. Drawing near to God was terrifying and dangerous. One small mistake in the whole process and he would forfeit his life. One glimpse of the glory of God and his life would be instantly taken from him. And so this one man with privileged access acts as a representative. But here's the problem. He too is still flawed. He too is still a man of sin. He too still needs to go through a cleansing, purification ritual. He is a sinner too who needs forgiveness from God. 
This is why the system was perpetual and ongoing. Everything is flawed. Everyone is broken. And to resolve this, perfection is needed. But this system was never meant to last. It was just a sign. Every element of this system pointing forward. Every element of this system intended by God to fade away. Every element of this system intended by God to one day come to fulfillment. You know, the destruction of Notre Dame was tragic. What's interesting, though, is as you look at the New Testament, Jesus talked about the necessity of the destruction of the temple. In fact, in John chapter 2, verse 19, Jesus said these words. He said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. He was talking, of course, about his body. But make no mistake about it, he was making a radical statement about accessing God, about the way in which we are going to be able to access God. He was making a powerful statement that this system, all that the temple represented, the sacrificial system, the Old Testament Mosaic law, all of the means of grace that were leading people to be able to have a a kind of access to God, they were all coming to a close, and he was the one who was going to bring it about. And the greatest way he could say that was by saying this, listen, destroy this temple, and I will raise it up again in three days. Jesus looked at the people and said to them, I am the temple. The temple points to me, and everything about it points to me. I am the place where God dwells with man. I am the place where heaven touches earth. I am the place where you can come to get access to the God who created you. I and I alone. I am the solution, Jesus was saying. You no longer go to a place to find access to God. On this side of the cross, you go to a person. The temple And all it stood for was simply a symbol pointing forward to something greater, something better. And on Good Friday 2,000 years ago, what we call Good Friday, that dark night when Jesus marched toward the cross, when he was unjustly hung up like a common criminal, when he was treated with such disrespect and dishonor, when he was mocked and beaten and abused... That dark night when all the Passover lambs were being slain across Jerusalem, at that moment the great Passover lamb was slain for the sins of the world. And in that moment, as Jesus hung on the cross, the curtain that hung in the temple preventing access to the Holy of Holies, the curtain that the author of Hebrews talks about right here, Mark chapter 15, 37 and 38 tell us this, that as Jesus hung on the cross and he breathed out his very last breath as he passed from life to death, in that very moment supernaturally, the curtain that hung in the temple was torn from top to bottom. The declaration that it is finished 
See, why? Why? Because at that moment, listen, the new and better way had been opened. Access to God was no longer prevented and protected. It was no longer limited the way it had been. It was no longer privileged to one person once a year. All of that was being changed radically in this one moment, in this one day of history 2,000 years ago. And when Jesus talked about the destruction of the temple, he wasn't talking about destroying access to God, but destroying restricted access to God. You say, how do we know that he did this? Come back Sunday. I won't leave you hanging. How do we know that he accomplished this way? How do we know that this is the only way, that he opened up this new and better way? How can we be sure? Because as he promised to destroy this temple, he said, and in three days I will rebuild it. And three days after he hung on the cross and the temple curtain was torn from top to bottom, Jesus Christ walked out of the grave. His death opened the way and his resurrection secured the way. What we celebrate in the Lord's table this morning and what we remember on Good Friday is that Jesus is our access. He is the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father but through Him. So the question for every person in here this morning, whether, listen, you attend this church, whether you attend the Bridge on Taunton or Redemption Church, or whether you attend an Easter service once a year or, or twice a year you go to church, listen, wherever you're at, here's the question that you need to be asking yourself, do you have this access to God? That's the question. Do you have this access to God? Do you have access to your Creator through Jesus Christ. You say, how, how do I get that access? The answer is simply this. You come to God through faith in Jesus Christ. That's it. You consider the truth of what we're talking about here this morning, that God came to rescue you because you could not rescue yourself. You believe in your heart, listen, that God put on flesh, that he lived a perfect life, and that he willingly marched to the cross to fulfill all of the Old Testament promises that you and I needed atonement, payment for our sin, and that Jesus Christ was so perfect, so pure, so righteous, so holy, that he and he alone could make that payment on your behalf. You believe that Jesus hung and that he died, you believe that he accomplished what you could not, and you believe what we celebrate on Sunday, that Jesus Christ walked out of the grave alive, having trampled on death, having defeated sin, and having the ability, listen, to give all those who have faith in him life in Jesus Christ. Confess your sin, even this morning. Turn from your sin. Bow the knee to Jesus Christ. Acknowledge what God has done for you. Embrace him as Lord and Master, and surrender your life to follow him all of your days. You can have access to God no other way. You cannot figure it out on your own. You cannot make up a new way. You cannot embrace another way. You must embrace the way. That's what Jesus said. I am the way. And there is no other way than coming through the curtain, his body that was broken for you, his blood that was shed for you. That's what we celebrate this morning through the Lord's table. 
we, by God's grace, have been given access to God full and free through the body and blood of Jesus. Jesus. 